Coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We take a trip to the ends of the earth and share some stories of IT support and Antarctica. Plus, we've got an interesting new and surprisingly reasonable suggestion for responsible disclosure. Maybe something you can use on your own websites. And we catch up with Krebs on his latest adventures in the world of deep insert credit card skimming. Plus, we've got your amazing feedback, a jam-packed roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This is episode 333, streamed live on August 24th, 2017. This show is brought to you by our three excellent sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. My name is Wes, and joining me this week is the ever-so-gracious Mr. Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hello, everybody. Pleasure to be with you. We had a little bit of a hiccup this week with scheduling, but never fear. The TechSnap hosts that you know and love are right here, ready to do a show. How are you this week? I'm good. Excellent. I'm glad to hear How are you? I'm doing well. A little bit of some car trouble kept me from the studio. That was unfortunate. Uh, 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 uh. But life goes on, and I'm here now. That's what counts. Uh, anything you want to start the show with today, or should we just jump into our uh, awesome, awesome uh, show notes? Um, I put a clock up on the wall that's been sitting on the floor for for months. I put my diploma up on the wall, which has been oh, aren't you sitting so proud. So, somewhere else for for months. That that's about it. I'm in the midst of replacing the last of the five terabyte drives. There's three left to go, three and a half left to go. Yeah, that's an ongoing project. So that may be over by the by the end of the weekend. And that's about it. Working on a Bacula 9.03 port that oh. might be ready by the end of the weekend. Excellent. Oh, no, there's, there's a conference here in town on Saturday, FOSCON. If you're in the Philadelphia area, you want to look up FOSCON. It's going to be uh, in University City on Saturday morning. Come along. I'll be there. Of course, of course you'll be there. You're, you're, you're Dan the conference man. Uh, I'm giving a talk. Yeah, cool. On Let's Encrypt. Free and open source software conference held annually in Philadelphia, PA. That sounds like a yep. lot of fun. I think this is my third year being there. Oh, awesome. Yeah, it's always nice when you get to see thing, those kinds of things grow. You become part of the part of the crowd and, yeah. and, and watch it transform. And you're giving a and talk. When you don't have to fly. You don't have to drive there. I can just take the train. Will the talks be recorded? I don't think they get recorded, no. Ah, shucks. No. I was hoping to see you talk about Let's Encrypt. Oh, that well. Would be fun. We'll always have more room for that here on we'll the show. We'll ask someone to tape it. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, I guess uh, we should get started. I was just looking with yeah. all this hubbub uh, about the solar eclipse. I was looking around the world. You know, what are the what are the next times that this thing, this sort of marvelous natural phenomenon is going to happen? And it looks like in 2021, uh, you could plan yourself quite an adventure. Head on down to Antarctica and you'll be able to see a total solar eclipse. But yes. this week, Antarctica is interesting for, for more than just that. Tell us more. Yes, it is. Um, this article is about someone who's an IT professional who's on a ship. And every ship needs an IT person because, believe it or not, there's a lot of technology on ships. And it's not just cables and wires. So it's not just um, like cars. Uh, ships are computers now, too. 
Mm-hmm. I was seeing, uh, I was reading something on Reddit about someone installing uh, server cabinets and stuff like that on, on a ship. And yeah, there's a lot of te- telecommunication telecommunications on new ships but even on an older ship you've got you've got stuff to do um now this chap is from barcelona where he works as a software engineer at uh, mendeley which is a london-based technology company owned by science publishers elsevier i probably pronounced that wrong sorry it's a big but, name in the publishing world it is uh, yeah, they own like a ton of journals. There's, there's some contention around that. But anyway, go on. All right. I, I don't know. Them. Um, before this year, he'd never been, never even slept aboard a ship. But he got an invitation to go on a three-month expedition around the Antarctica. Who wouldn't want to go on that? I three know, months right? that sounds down amazing. there? I would go. I did apply for a job in Antarctica once, so like uh, instructing um, the scientists on mountain safety and stuff like that, Um, though there's a scientist that went into the interior. Um, I applied, but I wasn't experienced enough, but Uh, I would have gone. That would have been amazing. I would have gone. Now I'm more likely to do the IT bit, but we'll see. We'll see. So having an IT person on board, in addition to, to the two maintenance and electronics engineers was essential. Luckily, Thomas, we start talking about um, Jen Thomas, who's previously worked with this group, which is a, which was a British, British Antarctic survey. Um, but they needed someone else, uh, another ship. Um, it was a research vessel set to undertake an ambitious Antarctic loop via Cape Town in South Africa, Hobart in Tasmania, which is part of Australia, and a stop in Chile. Now, if you ever get to go to Hobart, Hobart's a great city. Go and look at that. It's beautiful. Um, so during the IT professional short tenure at sea as at sea support, the um, ship had pushed through bad weather, uh, dealt with subpar food, and navigated to a telecommunication set that's twice today set up that never seemed to work properly and while some troubleshooting is to be expected on any such trip the fact that they'd had such little time to prepare the equipment before setting off presented them with a unique set of challenges right from the get-go um so This chap's unusual office time wrapped up this past summer because they go down there. When they talk about summer, it's southern summer. I'm sure that's when they went. So he returned to London in late July, which is really getting to be midwinter down there. Right, yeah. Conditions becoming a bit extreme. Yeah. Uh, There are no wintertime flights to the to Antarctica unless for emergencies. I think they might do one midwinter flight to drop veggies and stuff like that, but I think that uh, it's not a usual. It's not it's not a common thing because basically you're landing in forty or fifty degree weather and you can't stop the engines because they're going to seize up and you're not going to get them started again. So it's kind of risky. It's risky. Yeah, no kidding. Um, I remember they had to fly someone out who was um, critically ill, mm-hmm. um, and the plane that did it was actually a plane from Canada, I think, something that specializes in flying around in the north. They had to fly it all the way down to Antarctica. Wow. So, anyway. Um, reading from the article, 
If there's anything to take away from his experiences, it's that tech support in the most extreme places in the world isn't so different from tech support in more familiar settings. You'd think it would be very different. You would think that. That, that is, except for the lack of reliable connectivity and the ability to snag parts and equipment from Amazon or your local shop. <laughs> they don't have delivery there. Amen. They I do use that them. a lot. Yeah, they do need to work on that. Come on, Prime Now, uh, you know, a couple hours. That's enough time. Fly a helicopter out. What's the problem? Yeah, surely economics makes sense. But the need for help is constant. The emotions can run high and requests run the gamut from simple email server stuff to things no computer science curriculum will train you for. And we'll give you an example. So about a month after setting sail, someone approached uh, Pina. This is the chap's name with what he called a new challenge. Basically, it was a massive winch. And by massive, it's something that drops a, a, a CTD, we'll go into that, uh, down to 1,500 meters. So 1,500 meters is pretty deep. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's a huge winch. There's photographs on, on the webpage about it, but it, it's a huge winch. And he's got to get it working because basically... This piece of equipment is one is the most crucial piece to most of the 22 separate research teams on board. That's a lot of different research teams on this one boat, and he's supporting them all. So this winch is broken. Um, this CTD is rather important. Um, it's uh, an instrument used to measure connectivity, temperature, and pressure of seawater. That's what the D means. The D actually means for depth, which is closely related to pressure. So that's what it is. And it also takes water samples and stuff like that. So this is vital. So this winch just wasn't acting up. It's a software malfunction, and the error was interfering with the winch's ability to lower the extensive cabling into the water smoothly. Um, this guy attempted some debugging, but the manufacturer soon told him that inputting new parameters um, onto the winch computer remotely was impossible. So they couldn't do it. The oh, manufacturer no. couldn't do it. And considering he was in the middle of the ocean at the time, they were there under sail. It was, it was quite a problem. They have satellite downlinks, but it, it's not high bandwidth. And I think that would be the biggest issue for me if I went to Antarctica is not being able to download much data at all. I think, yeah. I think it's, it's a time you uh, catch up on that long reading list you've been building up. Or, or software. A lot of time for software. A lot Actually, of time the, for software. The reports I've read, you don't have as much time as you would think. Yeah, I'm sure there's but, lots of day-to-day things. and uh, Yeah. You've got to keep the gear running. So uh, it was a software malfunction. So he had to do some semi-hacking things. The temperature was around zero or minus two. Now, I'm guessing that that is, is centigrade. Um, so just just below freezing Fahrenheit. And it was windy with lots of sea spray, and the boat was rocking, and his hands were freezing. And he was out there with his computer. But the CTD was connected with a very short network cable, so I had to work outside. Did he not have a 50- or 100-foot length of Cat5 with him? Uh, you would kill for that in the, in the right situation. Actually, I and would then kill you for could that move, all the time. move your laptop inside and work safely. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm guessing. I'm guessing. But, I mean... If he was doing it, I'm sure he's a, a clever chap. Maybe but, we can uh, yeah. 
mail one on the next shipment that goes yes, out there. Yeah. So he got access to the winch computer, which operated Windows CE, oh, and using no. using his Linux machine, he was able to access it. He discovered the IP from the boot screen, and using Nmap, he found that it had a remote desktop server. And he he was able to press enter, and yes, he could change the parameters. He was able to change the parameters remo- from right there on the ship. But sadly, that didn't solve the problem. And he basically had to get the winch manufacturers to agree to let him to reinstall the software. But he couldn't do that until they got to Hobart because he had to download it through the hotel's Wi-Fi. He can't download it on the ship for some reason. And I can't fathom that at all. Uh, you, you would think that a research ship would have better internet connectivity, you but I guess that. that's just not not the case. So it had a happy ending. After he, he, he reinstalled the software and it still wouldn't boot up, still wouldn't boot up. So I guess the problem was the booting up to begin with. So after reinstalling the update in a different way, I wish they went into detail on what the different yeah. way was. That That's the technical stuff that we would like to hear. The winch finally stopped acting up. And soon enough, all the scientists got their water samples safely collected. So then he could take his computer out of the coat. So the next thing that he goes into is this hijacked networking. Uh, a scientist approached him with a machine she used to measure the reflection of light on the sea. I want to know what they measure that for. She needed to retrieve data from the device, but that could only be done by connecting it to a remote access point. So where's the router? It wasn't on the ship. It was somewhere in Australia. <laughs> so it was kind of hard to connect it up. So he came up with a better idea, a smartphone. He, he was able to hack together a network for by using an, a, an Android phone. And with Android, you can set up a hotspot, even with no signal, so the device can connect to their own laptop via his phone. So it sounds like the device connected to the Android and then the Android connected to the laptop. And that way the scientists could retrieve their data whenever they wanted without getting him involved. And I find that time and time again at work, we always want to come up with a solution so they never have to ask us again. Just here's a way you can do it. Yeah. Automate it somehow. Otherwise, you're just going to keep getting interrupted. You're trying to fix something else. And here you yep. are back solving yep. the same problem mm-hmm. yet again. And from what I can tell, he has the, the same UPSs down there that I have here. It, it's like a 1500 uh, KV. Are you talking a, about this APC here? Yeah, a, APC. I've got two of those sitting out in the living room that I need need to sell soon um, because I've got the, the rack mount now. I don't need these anymore. So that's something I have to sell. That'll probably happen in October. I'll have, suddenly have all this stuff up on eBay for sale, including these things. Although I'll probably put those on Craigslist. Who wants to mail those? Yeah, that sounds uh, expensive. Yeah, there's enough of a local market for UPSs. People will come and pick them up. Yeah, they're useful. Right? So, they are. Now, mail system was the next thing. He starts by talking about dial-up. <laughs> Did you ever do email on dial-up? Oh, yeah, definitely. 
back okay. in the day. I'm glad that that's a somewhat distant memory now, mm-hmm. but uh, I've certainly experienced it. Uh, I think it was 96 or 97, somewhere around there that I... No, I know for sure. Uh, uh, 1998. I'm sure it was 98 when when I got DSL. Oh, yes. First time I had had any sort of DSL. You were in um, we we can find this out because that would be my first article on FreeBSD Diary um, because, you know, I have it all indexed. And, yeah, no, yeah, it was early 1998. <laughs> early 1998. So, now, even on a ship, you don't have broadband, but they do, they are, they do have a way of downloading it. Basically, when you have a lot of people who are relying on an unreliable internet satellite internet connection for sending and receiving all their emails, it's a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Things oh, yeah. can quickly become tense. I can imagine. How much email are we talking about here? 100 megabytes. You can download that on your smartphone very quickly. So it's not a lot of data, but they had this problem they couldn't access some crucial expedition permits and documents it would have been easier to sail back to port to get them than to retrieve them at sea via outlook he says but that rerouting of the ship wasn't going to happen so instead he accessed a remote server downloaded and compressed all the emails to it and then sent those compressed files to the ship using rsync and he also wrote a script so that if the if the download stopped at any point, it could start again from the same place once the connection was reestablished. Rsync almost Rsync can restart, so he left this program running for eight or nine hours. So eight or nine hours to retrieve a hundred megabytes of email. Somebody wow. do the math. Somebody do that math, please. That's nuts. So, so this still didn't solve the problem, which was the ship had to have these emails, but the expedition didn't have a reliable communication system yet. So what he did is at the next port after leg one, so I, th- I think that would have been in Hobart again. They mentioned Hobart up here. Um, so what they did is during a three-day break, they went to a hotel and set up a new website domain and a new webmail server and then created users for everyone. So I can imagine the, them just setting up a special domain to forward all the email to and then uh, s- setting something up like, uh, not squirrel mail, uh, round, round cube, mm-hmm. and then created users for everyone and everyone could log in there. So people were using the webmail that he had deployed and it worked fine. But... In order for it to run smoothly, he had to limit the size of the emails over the system to 200K. 200K. How big is that? So in order to do that, he had to, some of the emails were bigger, so he had to um, split them up and download them in chunks. And email protocols generally don't allow emails to be split that way. They download it all or not at all. So he figured out some way to do that. With this in place, even though it might take five or ten minutes for someone to retrieve their email, users got a confirmation message straight away and knew that things were in hand. And he was obsessed with being fair, so he's downloading emails in the order in which they were received. So, oh, well, that's polite. 
person A didn't get all their email, and then person B got theirs. No, they got them in the order that they're sent. So I get the captain's email first, and then the head researcher, oh, yes. so, and then so, my so. email. Yes. So I guess this is really a people just stress like go back to text only emails here. We only yeah. have two hundred k to work with. We don't need no JPEGs. <laughs> Although it'd be hard because I'm sure there's some beautiful pictures. uh, But you would think that a lot of the stuff that they're sending is data. Yeah, right, exactly. Or they're trying to download data or they're trying to download firmware updates. Or you need the latest copy of the preprint article or whatever. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. There's real things to be transmitted, unfortunately. And there's one more section that he deals with here in the article, uh, something called a fairy box. But I'm not going to go into that because... Basically, it's just obtaining data out of something, and he doesn't really. There's not a lot of detail in there. It's it's not that interesting just to go over it. But I I also remember reading on Reddit within the past month, someone had gone down to Antarctica, and she was describing the network that she was setting up and dealing with. Uh, and I think she was going to be wintering over, which means she's oh, there. Yeah, that's now. Nice. And. Wintering over in Antarctica is something I would be interested in doing just for the experience. Just FYI, audience, Dan wants to go. Uh, yeah, I would, I would, I I would, go like, I would like to try that as well. It seems fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I met someone who did that recently as well. He didn't do IT. I think he was like a mechanical engineer, so helped yeah. repair some of the support structures. Yeah. But it was fascinating, and some of the had some great stories. It really does sound like a, you know, a once-in-a-lifetime sort of place to visit. There are a lot of different um, uh, jobs available. It's not just all scientists. In fact, most of the people that winter over, I don't think are scientists. That's mainly the summer season. Um, yeah, I think it's just kind of a core set, right, that you need to keep things going and operational so that the you know what experiments are still running can keep running over the winter and that when people come back, the base is in working order. It's still there. Yeah. Which is a hard thing when it's however many degrees below zero and crazy winds and far away from anything. I was reading something about uh, uh, shortly after the first plane takes the last plane takes off for the winter season. They sit down and they watch the thing. Uh, uh, that's hilarious. Let's just all get a little spooked out now that we have no hope of salvation. That's that's awesome. Well, okay. Well, that's a fun that's a fun article. It's kind of nice to know that uh hey, all the skills you're building here uh in civilization, they work when you're on the ends of the earth too. Mhm. And at the end of the day, like some ingenuity, a little bit of a hack here and there, being able to take, you know, systems that you understand and tie them together in new and novel ways is uh, always going to be a useful skill. Mhm. Yes. Awesome. All right. Well, if, that, if this sort of thing interests you, you're interested in extreme systems or, you know, building building reliable systems that can operate pretty much anywhere on the planet, there is only one hardware vendor for you. My friends, that's IX Systems. Yeah, that's right. IX Systems. Go to techsnap.ixsystems. Oh, no. Excuse me. It's ixsystems.com slash techsnap. IX is awesome. We're awesome. Put those two together. You've got an incredible combination. IX Systems is like the premier Hardware vendor, they've got incredible partnerships with everyone in the industry, especially Intel. They've got amazing Intel processors powering their servers, their NAS solutions, their giant storage arrays. So whether you are, you know, working down in Antarctica and trying to assemble a massive data set and you need big storage that's reliable and can handle the winter, or 
you know, you're a, a researcher in a small office and you need a new uh, a NAS so that you can share research and, and share data between you and your and your fellow coworkers. It doesn't matter. IX Systems is the best in the business. They know this stuff. They work. I mean, just take a look. Head on over to their, their site. And you can see some of the people that they work with. People like NASA, UC Berkeley, Sony, Disney, VMware, Adobe, Aerospace Corporation, Symantec. I mean, they're big names. And there's, there's a lot of small names in there, too. If you just need like a NAS for home, you can't go wrong. Get the free NAS Mini. You can buy it right now on Amazon. Yeah, sure, they don't ship to Antarctica, but they ship just about everywhere else. Or call up IX Systems. One amazing thing that really sets them apart is their super talented staff of sales engineer. They are ready, standing by the phones, to take your call and become an awesome partner for you. They want to understand what problems you're solving. They want to understand what value they can add and how to make sure that whatever you need, that's what you get in a timely fashion, in a way that's reliable and that's done properly. You know, things like burning in your hard disk. They will make sure that all your hard disks have been burned and tested out of their, their, you know, the primary case of failure so that you know that these hard drives are ready to go, ready for production. Configure your systems however you need. So maybe you're buying a, a cool new server that you need. You're going to stick it in Australia. It's going to be your, your email relay. You don't want that going down. And maybe you're on a ship in Antarctica. You can't go to the data center to set it up yourself. You can't get it shipped to you. That's fine. IX Systems will set up the system, mail it right to the data center. Data center techs can rack it in, plug it on, and away you go. It's that easy. Plus, IX Systems has been around for a long time. They know the community. They're a part of the community. They've seen dot-com bursts and bubbles and everything in between. So you can you can have confidence that they're going to be there to provide you that excellent support, the white glove service that you've come to expect, and that they're going to be there when you're at, you're at conferences or other venues where open source things are happening. That's why if you go to ixsystems.com slash techsnap, you'll find an awesome guide for buying hardware for open source software. Really can't be beat. It's a fantastic white paper. If you're in charge of hardware purchasing, maybe you know someone who is or someone looking for some new hardware, that's a great a great PDF to give them. Uh, gives them some ideas of their options, some things about the competition, and why iX Systems really is the place to go. And while you're there, just pop on over to their blog. They've always got really interesting stuff going on. They've got all sorts of stuff about you know conferences, Talking about where they'll be, you can go visit IX Systems at VMworld. Uh, got some comparisons between file systems that we've talked about here on the show and updates to TrueNAS and FreeNAS and other platforms that they provide and support. Really can't go wrong. If you need extreme systems or just everyday systems that just work, head on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap. And thank you to IX Systems for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Okay, so with that, we move on to the next piece of our show. What do you have next today, Mr. Dan? The next bit is security.txt. Security.what? Security.txt. Sort of like robots.txt, but for security. I mean, I am concerned about, if we've got robots, I'm a little bit concerned about security because I don't want them to attack me. Robots do not attack. Remember whose three rules of robot? uh, yeah, Asimov's three laws of Asimov's robotics. three lo- laws of robotics. Yes. So uh, I was confused by this because it's not actually security.txt. The the first thing that they talk about here is another uh, RFC. RFC five seven eight five. Let's go over and have a look at RFC five seven eight five first. So RFC five seven eight five is 
titled Defining Well-Known Uniform Resource Identifiers, URIs. So, this memo defines a path prefix for well-known locations, specifically, that's my word, slash dot well hyphen known slash. So, I had never heard of this. There is no, actually an RFC which defines slash dot well-known on websites. This is astounding. This has been out since 2010. This is not a new RFC. It's been updated a couple of times. It may even be older. No. No. Those two are not uh, relevant. So, anyway, th this is a place for company. You can go and register something for that directory if you want. Like, you, you can have dot well-known slash example. You can register this directory for your application. So, anyway, back to this. So, th this chap is defining something. Uh, let me just read this. Security.txt is a, quote, standard, unquote, which allows websites to, to define security policies. Now, this isn't how am I making this website secure. This, quote, standard sets clear guidelines for security researchers on how to report security issues and allows bug bounty programs to define a scope. Security.txt is the equivalent of robots.txt, but for security issues. So this goes back to what we recently talked about when, when uh, I think, was it Krebs or was it Troy Hunt who was, was giving us examples of how difficult it can be for a security researcher to report a security vulnerability. And it, we also uh, use Tesla's example of how easily, it, how easy it can be for a company to specify who should I contact? What's my PGP key? How do I get there? Stuff like that. So that's what this specific um, project deals with. Now, um, how it works, it goes under dot slash well-known security dot text. This is his, his um, idea. He is going to create uh, an RFC for that. That, that is underway. Uh, did, did he, where did he, what is the main purpose? The main purpose of security.txt is to help, is to make things easier for companies and research, security researchers when trying to secure programs. Thanks to security.txt, security researchers can easily get in touch with companies about security issues. Where do you put this file? It goes under dot slash well-known. Is it supposed to replace bug bounty program platforms? No. You can use security.txt to link to your platform. So, uh, going back up in the article, um, basically, there are what you can do. There, there are a lot of available options in this file, like InScope. InScope, you can go and you can test anything in example.com. Or in InScope, you can go to github.com slash example project. And then you also say, what is out of scope? test.example.com. Don't bother going to test.example.com because that's just our early code. Out of scope vulnerabilities. So don't bother reporting clickjacking to us. And rate limits. How many requests can researchers send per second? Contact. Who do I contact? You can put your PGP key in there. You can have a security page in there. Um, you can specify a 
payment method that the company will use when rewarding a researcher. Uh, I want, I'm positive all of these uh, allow for multiple values because I'm sure they can do PayPal or Bitcoin. Uh, they also allow you to specify the reward. Uh, it gives you a disclosure policy. It allows you to disallow um, security researchers from certain areas. You can also put in comments. And then they give examples. They have the FAQ. And what I find interesting is that they have a number of open issues and six closed issues. And when did this uh, start? Um, this project only seems to be not that old. Um, I can't actually see. I think it may be only 12 days old. And he already has yeah, it looks like it was six started closed in, uh, issues. In August or so. Yep. So some of the issues, I went, I went through the issues and uh, made note of some of them just because I found those particular issues interesting. I did not look at the closed issues. JSON was discussed but dismissed. We're not going to put JSON in here. Basic reason being they want to keep the barrier to entry very low. Yeah, I thought there was a really good um, discussion in that. You know, there it was, was. It was civil. There were some very good laid yep. out reasons for advantages and disadvantages, which which was nice because sometimes it's the right answer, sometimes not. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a good yep. good discussion. I I was also impressed by the level of civility in the discussion. Um, CWE will be used. That's the common weakness enumeration. So it's basically a, an easy way to. It eliminates free form from certain fields. They use standard values in there. Uh, someone also mentioned versioning of security. Um, but again, that was thought to be too complex, so they'll let third parties do that. I, I mean, third parties already look at a lot of stuff and, and save stuff like that. Generation utilities have also been created. So here, use this tool to create your security.txt. Um Dump, uh, no, that was the wrong one. And that's as f- that, that's all the issues that I found, um, of interest. Well, Steve, but, yeah. is this something you would use on, uh, any of your personal websites or websites? If it's support? easy enough, yeah. Mm-hmm. If it's easy enough, yeah. Because I actually don't have anything on my websites for anything like this. I mean, some of my websites are just static web pages. Yeah, it's right. not likely to be a lot of um vulnerabilities or security no. issues no but it would be cool to see something like this um you know become a little bit more standardized be, get some adoption mm. because you're right like you can do it very well like we talked about with tesla and you can do it very poorly or just not at all and there's a lot of people who have you know good faith and want to do the right thing and will respect limits or other policies that you set given the chance I think it's a nice idea. I think it's very original. Yeah. I've never heard anyone else suggest anything like this, but I think it's a really good idea. And I really hope that it, it, it gets traction and actually becomes an RFC because you can point to it and say, Hey, do it like this. Do it like this. Yeah. Right. And it's a clear thing. Even if you're not a security expert or keep up with security news or the community, this is something you can follow and maybe, you know, can be get integrated into this best practices guides and other things. So like, all right, well, while you're doing your SEO, when you make your robust text, make sure you do this too. Yeah. And a bit like SPF. Oh yeah. You can find tools for using it. Yeah. That's a good you, you may not have to know how to set it up, but 
there will be third-party tools. There already are. <laughs> there already are. Thank you, Internet. Hopefully this gives us a little bit of a safer and, you know, better understood Internet. And today I learned about Dot Well Known, so that's fun too. I'd, I'd never heard of it Me before. Either. And we've been around the Internet. Apparently not, though. No. We're not around enough. I wonder what a random uh, dot well-known search does. I wonder if it comes up with much of anything. Just because, well, no. It just, there's a whole lot of different things. RFC, well-known RFC. Let's see here. Well, it takes you to the Internet Engineering Task Force page, but no. Um, But yeah, there there are a number of... uh, of things that I'm finding where people, yeah, they do seem to be using it. Excellent. Okay. Well, anything else you want to add before we move on? Mm, no. I, uh, yes. I like this. I hope it t- gets traction. I already said that, but I said it again. Perfect. All right. Well, uh, dear audience, if you like this too and you want to get trying it out and maybe you're not already hosting something or you just want to play around with it, head to our next sponsor this evening. That's right. It's DigitalOcean. Head on over to DigitalOcean. You can use our promo code SNAPOcean, all lowercase, one word, SNAPOcean. Couldn't be better, really. That will get you started with DigitalOcean's awesome droplets. These are VPS. They live in the cloud, and you can spin them up in just 55 seconds. Yeah, that right. Right. You just heard this. You hear me talk about it. You hear the promo code. Go type those things in. In less than a minute, you will have a brand new Linux, FreeBSD, whatever you want, box in the cloud, ready to test. You can. They've got a ton of great documentation and examples, and one-click recipes. So if you just need to run a new server, run in, run an nginx, and you want to start playing around with maybe a static website or a website that has a .dot well-known folder with security and other files in there, boom, super simple. And with their awesome documentation, it's submitted by the community, but maintained by real editors hired by DigitalOcean to help enhance that documentation you'll find all the resources you need to get started. So not only do they provide an incredible, you know, actual technical platform, it's also a social and uh, community platform where you can really, you know, work together on these things, learn insights from fellow DigitalOcean users, and it'll all help you, you know, build the best service that you can. So, so, so what else? What else is there? Like, yeah, sure, that all sounds great. But the things you really need to know is, one, all SSDs. Yeah, that's right. All SSDs. DigitalOcean was some one of the first providers out there to really go all in on the SSD game, and it shows. They've been doing it for a long time. They're doing it the best. They've got stuff like attachable block storage, also SSD. You get a generous amount of disk on each of your droplets, no matter what size you get. And they've got incredible bandwidth. 40 gigabit E right to the hypervisor, real KVM virtualization. It's not containers. It's not like this. You can run whatever kernel you want. And it's still super cheap. So using SnapOcean, our promo code, that'll get you a $10 credit. And then wait till you find out. Prices start at just $5 a month. So that's two months of their low-end droplet. But that's not really low-end. You still get 512 MB of memory, one virtual CPU, 20 gigs of SSD disk, and a whopping one terabyte of transfer. Yeah, that's right. A whole freaking terabyte. Plus, DigitalOcean has a ton of the features you've come to, to know and expect from a cloud provider. They've got things like cloud firewalls, load balancing, monitoring, high CPU droplets. I already mentioned attachable block storage, private networking between droplets in the same data center, and they're working 
on object storage. I know, isn't that exciting? So really, it's a great place for whatever you're doing, starting a new business, a startup, open source project, or just a site for yourself to play around with. It's all great use cases. You can get a head start with our promo code SNAPOcean and go make something awesome on DigitalOcean and make sure you tell us about it. So thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the TechSnap program. Ah, okay, so time for our final main segment today. We go back to a, a friend of ours at the show with some updates on skimmers. This is always a fascinating topic on this show. It kind of uh, you know bridges the gap between some of the technical stories that we talk about, you know, uh, computer security, internet security, and it brings it home to the real world, at least for me, because there's things you could encounter just in everyday life, even if you aren't, uh, you know, an internet denizen. Yes, we're back on inter- on uh, ATM skimmers and. Not to be fear-mongering, we'll get to why this is not as big a problem as you think, just that it does happen, and it's nice to be aware of these things. So we've talked about card skimmers before where they where they sort of fit on the outside, and there's like a, um, a facade that they will put over the opening to the skimmer, and people have been taught to sort of give a little tug on, on the skimmer entry point of the card just to make sure that there isn't a skimmer there but now what they're doing is they're putting the skimmers inside and i think we talked about the skimmer actually being physically inside the car inside the machine listening to it oh yeah we talked about it was a separate card they put it in in the actual um uh data stream within the atm it just sat there listening uh in serial and recorded all the information, and then had a um, a sailor uh, connection so that it could transmit the packets out as it accumulated the data. This is something different. This is something that gets inserted deep inside the um, uh, ATM, probably through the card reading slot, but then it just sticks there, possibly through magnets. We'll get we'll get to the details and, and how that goes as I, as I start reading the article. So Krebs start off by saying, I recently heard from a police detective who is seeking help identifying some strange devices found on two Romanian men caught maxing out stolen credit cards at local retailers. Further inspection revealed the devices to be semi-flexible data transfer wands that thieves can use to extract stolen ATM card data from deep insert skimmers. There's a link in the show notes to what that is. Wafer-thin fraud devices made to be hidden inside of the card acceptance slot on a cash machine. So in, in, in about two or three inches. The, the investigator agreed to share the photos if I kept his identity out of the story. He told Krebs on security that the two men were thought to be part of a crime gang active in the Northeast United States and that the four-inch orange plastic wands allow thieves to download the data from a deep insert skimmer. Depending on how deep the deep insert skimmer is, thieves may be able to use the wands to retrieve credit card data without having to remove the skimmer from the throat of the machine. Now, you might wonder... Why is there a connection between two Romanian men and 
a crime gang active in the Northeast United States. Well, I went and read the post on Deep Insert Skimmers, and what they're doing in Europe is skimming the information off the cards. That information can't be used in Europe because almost everyone is using chip and pin. But in the U.S., most ATMs are still just magnetic stripe. Yeah. So that that's what they're doing is they're gathering the information in the states, selling it to gangs in the U.S. who then use it to extract money from ATMs. Uh, and some credit card companies are actually geolocking their cards so they can't be used somewhere else. That's why you often have to tell your bank that, hey, I'm going on holiday in Europe. I'm going to be using my card over there because suddenly you pop up in Europe and, right. and can't, you can't, can't use your card. Without confirmation, that just will inherently look mm-hmm. suspicious. Mm-hmm. So these deep insert skimmers, they supplied a photograph of it. It's about four inches long. It looks to be about uh, an eighth of an inch or a quarter of an inch uh, uh, wide, but very thin. Um, it's almost like ribbon cable. Yeah. And on one end of it is a micro connector, and on the other end is a USB port. So basically the micro connector goes down th- in through the um, card acceptance slots and attaches to it. How they get it attached to it, I don't know. They must be using some special tool, I would expect. I would like to watch that. Yeah, it must I want to see that on film. So... Um, I said they attach my magnets, but the magnets get attached in a spot so they don't interfere with the magnetic stripe on your card and and doesn't wipe it. Yeah, otherwise that would ruin the whole thing. uh, It wouldn't really work. Uh, Now, Charlie Harrow, who is a solutions manager for ATM maker NCR Corp. NCR do a lot of stuff. They really do, yeah. Yep said he has not physically examined the devices pictured above, but they appear to have a USB interface on one end, the end that plugs into whatever device the crooks use to download stolen credit card data, and a low-profile head on the other. So the USB end won't go in, but the micro um, connector will. And from, from what I can tell in the photos, it's just like a, an, a lowercase h-shaped piece of metal and I'm not kidding. There's masking tape holding this device to one side of the slot. And then it looks like a card reader device on the other side of, of, of this H. And the card just comes through the card reader, just slides along that magnetic stripe. The card reader stores that magnetic, that magnetic information internally. And it's just running off a little watch battery. So, the news likes to hype things. It likes to hype the unusual. Why, you know, common day stuff is not news by definition, but stuff like this is, which means it doesn't happen very often. Now, yeah, you will know of someone that has had something happen to their bank card. It's suddenly been replaced, but as Krebs says, says here, truthfully, you probably have a better chance of getting physically mugged after withdrawing cash than you do encountering a skimmer in real life. Keep things in perspective. That's, that's my words. Yeah. 
back to what Krebs says. So keep your wits about you when you're at the ATM and avoid dodgy looking and standalone cash machines in low lit areas if possible. When possible, stick to ATMs that are physically installed at a bank. Yes. Absolutely. And yeah. be especially vigilant when withdrawing cash on the weekends. Thieves tend to install skimming devices on Saturdays after business hours when they know the bank won't be open again for more than 24 hours. And this bit is even more important. Lastly, but most importantly, covering the pin pad with your hand defeats one key component of most skimmer scams. The spy camera that thieves typically hide somewhere on or near the compromised ATM to capture customers entering their pins. That's pretty easy. You just put your hand over and type away. Yeah. Actually, I think that's one thing I've seen that I think has made it to be pretty common knowledge or like a lot of, a lot of people who may mm-hmm. not be otherwise super security conscious mm-hmm. are at least doing that. So that's nice. Mm-hmm. Now, then Krebs go on. And he goes back to a skimmer tale from 2012, five years ago, when he had obtained hours worth of video seized from two ATM skimming operations and saw customer after customer walk up, insert their cards, and punch in their digits. It was all in the clear. I still go back to, remember the keypads that, that have randomized number locations? Oh, yeah, right. So... If the camera couldn't see the actual digits that you were typing, it could only see where your hand was moving, chances are they couldn't tell. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I still like that idea. Yeah, I like like that idea as well. I mean, it might be somewhat annoying, but people, I'm sure you would adapt to it. You're just punching. How many people just remember their pin just from the motion? (laughs) That's a good question. Oh, wait, what is the number? What is that? Um. Yeah. Uh, I like this article. I like the bit of detail that they've given us, but I'm also glad that he's saying be aware, but don't be worried. Uh, It's it's very unlikely that this will happen to you, but it's possible, not probable. Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Possible, but not probable. And I think that's a good, you know, that's a good, um, it's it's easy, especially for lay people, maybe, to, to get too worried about things or really feel like they have no security any longer. I know a lot of people feel that way about online banking, for instance, or other, you know, credit card transactions on the internet. You hear a lot of stories about identity theft, etc. So it's nice to have experts sort of try to try to actually give you the relative risk and how, how you should change your behaviors and maybe how you shouldn't. Yep. That crab's always doing a very professional job. Anything else you want to add uh, here? Any advice to people uh, that goes above and beyond? Yeah. Protect your pen. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Don't tell it to friends. Don't write it down and keep it in your wallet. All, all <laughs> sorts of bad ideas. Uh, and I guess like you were just saying, make sure you actually know it and not just the key code combination. Okay, well, uh, I guess that makes it time for our final sponsor this evening. That's right. It's everyone's favorite. It's my favorite. It's Ting. What is Ting? Ting is 
a smarter way to do mobile. You can find out more by heading over to techsnap.ting.com. There you'll see that the average Ting bill is just $23 per phone per month. And by going to techsnap.ting.com, you get a $25 service credit. So it'll probably pay for your whole first month's bill. And possibly more depends on what you use because Ting is different than other mobile service providers. It's a pay-for-what-you-use system. Yeah, that's right. You don't use it, you don't pay for it. Lines start at just $6 a month, and that includes all the things that you'd expect and some things that you wouldn't expect and some things that you don't want. Things like early termination fees. Ting doesn't have that. Things like two-year annual contracts. Ting doesn't have that either. But they do have three-way calling, tethering, voicemail, all those sorts of things that you, you would expect from a normal carrier. Ting's got them. And Ting's got two kinds of networks. Yeah, maybe you're a CDMA person. Sure, CDMA, great. Works really well in my area. Or maybe you're a GSM kind of person. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with either of those choices. Ting lets you make that choice. Whether you want to buy a new phone, they've got a great shop. You can head over to their shop and and use that uh, service credit. Or bring your own device. They make it really easy to check and make sure that your device will work. And then you just hop, hop on. They've got an incredible app. So... You don't have to call them if you don't want to. Awesome app. You can do pretty much anything you need to on on your account. Deactivate, reactivate things, change settings, pay your bill, all the normal stuff, and all the stuff that most carriers don't let you do. An incredible web app as well. You can log onto the website, do all those same things, and they've got real great customer service. You call them up, you'll talk to a real human, and they will stick with you and make sure that your problem is resolved. Because that's the thing. Ting is a reseller. They make some negotiations with some of the larger carriers, and then they resell that. And that means they don't have to focus on building infrastructure, maintaining all that. No, they get to be the value add of awesome customer service. They want to make mobile simple. They want to make it cheap for you, and they want to make it clear and understandable so that you feel you get a good value and that they're there to help. That's really what sets them apart. So whether you just want to pay less per month, or maybe you have some cool tech projects you want to do, you need to, you know, you need a 3G connection so you can relay data from your remote sensor or you want a backup phone that you keep in the truck when you go on a hike or you want a you know a backdoor gateway to your house in case your main connection goes out all of these are great uses for Ting that's what makes it so simple and flexible you don't have to just buy the amount of minutes that you think you need for the next 2 years no use what you want when you use more pay for more when you use less pay for less that's what makes Ting a smarter way to do mobile so head on over to techsnap.ting dot com get started today and uh hey let them know you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program thanks ting and that brings us to the feedback segment today that's right it's time to reach into the mailbag see what awesome things our audience has been up to their thoughts crit- critiques and uh maybe some compliments we'll find out today so first up uh, Jungle Boogie writes in to mention a couple things about database migrations, a topic we covered on a recent show. So first up, uh, Squitch. Is that how you say it, you think? I think it's Squitch, yeah. S-Q-Itch. Check it out. I think, I think, I think. Sane database change management. What makes it different from your typical migration-style approaches? No opinions. Native scripting, dependency resolution, no numbering. Interesting. It kind of it sounds like an interesting project. Uh, 
David Wheeler is the guy behind this. Uh, that's who Theory is. Um, and I remember meeting uh, Yeah, there. A three-hour technical tutorial originally presented at PGCon 2013. That's my conference. And updated in 2014, covering source code with Git and other stuff. So there's a speaker deck, the keynote, and the PDF for all of that stuff. And I think at the time he, he was working or is still working for IOVation. Um, but yeah, definitely. If you're looking at change management for database, have a look at that. Um, when was his last release? Oh, a month ago. So he is still, this is still under um, active updates. It's not a stalled program by any means. No, not so at all. So definitely have a look at that. And then what's the next one? P now, I have heard of Squitch before. It did not come to mind during the previous, uh, during the original question, which was part of episode 332. Um, but then the next program I also recognize, PG Backrest, uh, which has been around for quite some time. And that is also by, is it by the same group? No, it's by a different group. PG but Backrest. Yeah. Reliable Postgres Backup and Restore. Named to mm -hmm. be a simple, reliable backup and restore system that can seamlessly scale up to the largest databases and workloads. Instead of relying on traditional backup tools like TAR and RSync, PG Backrest implements all backup features internally and uses a custom protocol for communicating with remote systems. Interesting. I can see that as either an advantage or a disadvantage, but it sounds like they're you doing that because they've got you know some particular database-specific semantics and challenges uh, that they can optimize for. I'd be interested to read more about it. Yes. Uh, I, I don't have a need for any of these particular tools, but I'd be very interested to see what problems people are solving with them because then that may give me an idea, oh... Yes, I wanted to do that for a while. And sometimes he hearing the use case of others can give you um, a solution for a very similar but quite different problem that you're trying to fix. So if anyone's using these tools, please write in and let us know what you're using it for and how. And that may give other people some great ideas, including myself. Entirely selfish reasons, but thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's cool that this can be sort of a, a forum for sharing these neat tips and tricks because there's lots of stuff that i've done and i want to share but there's some stuff that i've just never encountered and it's it's awesome to be able to have this a for my own reference for the future and then b for everyone else okay yes, so uh, exactly that was from jungle boogie thank you for the great recommendations jb that's great up next gary ford writes in about a command line utility called shred he uses it to erase laptops from a live linux disk Sounds like you did some further research, and it's no longer maybe the best. Uh, it, it 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 applies. It, it used to be used to shred files, right? But it yeah, also it can before. be used to shred um, whole whole disk volumes. And to shred a whole disk volume makes sense, but nowadays um, it does not make sense to use it for um, whole for um, to shred a file. Because something like a, uh, a copy and write file system like ZFS, 
not only do you have to shred the current file, you have to go back and find all the previous versions yes. of the file and shred that. And that's not as easy as it sounds, I think, because you can't actually go back in a copy and write file system and do that. Um, now, shred on FreeBSD comes as part of SysUtils core utils, and it's from the Free Software Foundation. Free Software Foundation, and it has a whole lot of stuff in there. Um, it's interesting. It has like it's a whole separate shell all by itself because it has base name, cat, change group, chmod, and it's all in there. I think that at one point uh, shred got dropped, and I don't actually see it in there. Uh, I know that I looked at the uh, package list. Yeah, it is in there, right in between SHA one sum and uh, sleep. So, mo similar utilities to most of these exist in the FreeBSD base system, but many of the GNU versions have functionality that is have added functionality that is useful. Note: this port will install these util utilities with a G prefix, for example, GDate, GExpress, and GTest. But the text oh. info documentation will refer to them without the G prefix. They do that because so, it's a GNU tool, right? So that they, in case there's like namespace collisions. Yeah, and they don't want to overwrite the existing. Yeah, right. You don't want to replace yeah. the FreeBSD sort of similar utilities with this one, and you want to be able to have yeah. a choice. Interesting. So, yeah, you you could use G, G shred, shred to wipe it, but if you're going to use that, I, I still think the DD is enough. Uh, just wipe the whole drive because most of the data recovery services are based on something being dropped. They're not based on recovering data mm -hmm. from an overwrite. So unless you're scared of, uh, let's say, nation-state-style actors or other similarly resourced entities, yes. DD should be more than enough to protect your privacy. Yeah. And, for example, if you're like me and you're about to sell hard, uh, drives on eBay, I imagine a DD will be sufficient. But I'm sure someone's going to try and buy my drives specifically to find out what's on them and say, hey, Dan, look here, DD isn't enough, just because I said that. Well, now I'm going to have to do that. <sighs> I'm sure you will. And I will be interested to see what people come up with. Just don't show everybody. Oh, um, yeah, that, okay. that, that was it. It took me a while to find, find where this was. Um, he didn't specifically. Oh, oh no, he did. He did. He did. He did. He found G shred, and he found it in the FreeBSD man pages. Awesome. But uh, it's not actually installed by default. That makes sense. Well, thank you very much, Gary, for writing in. That's a fascinating discussion. I'm glad that we can have it here. Uh, next up, Prime sixty two mentioned on the TechSnap subreddit, TechSnap.reddit.com. Uh, some password hashing and salting resources, which is great because, you know, you may not be an expert in this area and you want some guidance. So uh, first up, salted password hashing. Doing it right. <laughs> hey, that's a great title. Yep. Uh, this is over at codeproject.com. Yes. And as, as the post says, don't write your own crypto. Don't write your own crypto, uh, your own hashing algorithm. Use somebody else's, but then salt it properly. And... Um, and one of the common salts I always thought was to use the password itself as the salt. I remember using that, using that or doing that. 
Um, but I don't actually remember anything. I don't remember the details of what I actually used at the time. But yeah, this does look like what they're doing and, and how they're salting one hash into another hash. Uh, don't reuse the same salt. Don't use a short salt. Uh, double hashing and wacky hash functions. So don't use any of them. And so the right way, they have a whole list of what the right way is, uh, depending on what platform you're using. Um, it, it, for example, if you're using Perl, you want to use math random secure. Um, to store a password, generate a long random salt using a C-spring which is a pseudo-random number generator, cryptographically secure pseudo-random number generator, to be specific, um, and prepend the salt to the password and hash it with a standard hashing, hashing algorithm like argon2bcrypt or something. Save both the salt and the hash in the user's database record. And then they say, how do you validate a password? You receive the, you retrieve the, the salt and the hash, you prepend the salt to the password and hash it using the same hash function. Compare the hash of the given password with the hash from the database. If they match, the password's correct. Now, I do remember doing that, that bit of stuff with um, my websites. Yeah, right. This is a really good, uh, really good article. Um, just there's a lot here. I like that they kind of talk about how um, how passwords are cracked, and so you can kind of understand, you know both what mm-hmm. you should be doing and then kind of why, because here's how the things that we're doing can resist these these attacks or not, uh, which is awesome, especially if you're like, okay, well, I'm really excited about making this this new web page or new product, and I'm not a security researcher, but I want to make sure that it's right on launch day. Here you go. Yep. Now, one of the things I go into is impossible to crack hashes, keyed hashes, and password hacking hashing hardware. So have a look at that. And they recommend that approach for any large scale, say more than 100,000. And if you get more than a million users, you definitely should be using it. Uh, I'm not. I'm sure I'm not. I I could change that, but we'll see. Okay, so he also recommended here uh, the Definitive Guide to Form-Based Website Authentication, uh, which is over on Stack Overflow. Oh, yes. Yes. I did like that. Yeah. So there's another kind of guide. It kind of explains, like, should you use HTTPS? (laughs) Don't roll your own JavaScript encryption and hashing, captures, some other, you know, general security concerns if you're taking form input on your website. So this is helpful, too. Uh, Yeah. This is a very thorough answer. I'm very impressed. Someone took a lot of time here to write this. So go check it out. See if you can put it to some good use. If you have similar resources that you want to share uh, with us, please do techsnap.reddit.com and go to jupiterbroadcasting.com. There's a contact page there. You can send us stuff there or you can send it to us on Twitter. Uh, looks like we also had one other feedback item this week on from Reddit and just the comment that there is no point mm-hmm. on max password lengths since the field will be hashed or at least should be. Which, hey, yeah, that's a good that's a good point, right? Uh, that's kind of the whole point of the hash function is, uh, you know, it'll transform this data into... The hash. Yeah, so it makes me wonder why some websites have a limit on the maximum length. Is it that it's a hangover from some other time? Is it that the um, 
they've imposed a limit on the web page that says you can't enter more than 12 characters in here, none of which are really valid because the hashing is probably done. You could do the ha- Can you do the hash in JavaScript? I'm sure you can. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and then only transmit the encrypted, the hashed password, even though it's over HTTPS. Yeah. I mean, you'd think that would, that would, that would maybe be the best in a lot of, in a lot of scenarios. P- possibly there's reasons why you wouldn't want to do that, but I'm not sure what those would be. This can't be very complex because um, I know that I use uh, Stripe.com for credit card payments. And the only criteria I have to meet in order to use them and be PCI compliant, is that the right term? Uh, If you're having uh, credit card data, is PCI? Yeah. Yeah. In order for for my website to be PCI compliant when using Stripe.com's interface, all I have to do, and this is a very low barrier to entry, is make sure I'm using HTTPS. That's all I have to do. Wow, that's awesome. Because their little uh, library does everything else for you. You enter in the... D- the user gets a little uh, pop-up on the in their browser. It says enter your credit card details um, and, and enter your... Um, uh, your check code, your, your three-digit code off the back, all of that information goes straight to Stripe. It never touches my servers at all. Stripe then gives me a token, and I can use that token to identify that card. That's but awesome. The, it, it's just, it, it's effectively a hash yeah. is what I get back, or some sort of unique identifier that just looks like a hash. And if I ever want to charge that card again, I use that token, and Stripe knows that I've previously used it because it was created for my card. Um, they may have that card there from another, that same card may be there for another vendor, but that vendor has a different hash for that card. I am positive they have a different hash for that card because they you, you can de- you can invalidate that hash at some future point. Right. Yeah. And it doesn't affect the relationship with any other vendor that that customer has. So, yeah. Yeah, that seems like that's a really good model for the way, you know, the way things should work. And then you, the user, can be like, yeah, okay, well, I type in my my stuff here. It's just getting beamed right back to Stripe. Dan doesn't get to touch it, doesn't really get to see it. And it can all be done, you know, sent over in JavaScript and connected on the back end. So that's, that's pretty neat. Yep. Interesting enough, when your website get ha- gets hacked and usernames get out, but there's no reason for password hashes to have any sense to anyone. And what's the other thing? Uh, yeah, and credit card details. Oh no, no, I would never want to have to no, that's deal a with whole that. no. gamut of engineering no. you have to deal with. No, yikes! No, thank you. All right. Well, thank you everyone for the feedback today. Um, there's lots of great stuff. So audience, please check the, check out some of these resources that have been generously provided by the community. See what you think. Provide some meta feedback on that or links of your own. JupiterBroadcasting.com slash contact. TechSnap.reddit.com or uh, find us on Twitter. That does it for today's feedback, but uh, keep it coming. And that brings us to the roundup, the final segment of the show. We've got some stories here that's homework for both you and us. 
Some stories we didn't have time to do a deep dive into, but still fascinating bits of information from around the internet. First up, over at Swift on Security. Here's a tweet. Mobile operators deploying portable sell-on-wheels slash sell-on-truck units along Eclipse Path to handle huge data usage of photos and streaming. Yeah, I can imagine so. Uh, don't they deploy these things to sporting events and stuff like that as well? Yeah, I imagine anytime um, you have a sizable crowd, they have to do some capacity management. Because I've even noticed that um, at baseball games, for example, sometimes it gets... Uh, really busy like if there's action on the field it's not that busy but after something pretty significant it gets slow again or in between innings it gets slow again as everyone checks their phones um but no if you're sitting near the bases you don't want to be checking your phone yeah, that's true you should be uh, paying attention to the game and you don't want to get hit in the head with the bat. not to get hit in the head yeah that's pretty important too uh, okay, awesome. That's a little bit. It's it's interesting because we all rely on it so much. But unless you work for did, a carrier, you don't really have a lot of insight into what's going on behind the scenes. No. Did you get to see any of the eclipse? Uh, yes, I did actually, which was which was a lot of fun. It it was noticeably darker here, and if you went under a tree and looked at the sunspots that were filtering through, you could definitely see the crescent. Oh yeah, that's awesome. The, the I saw some really good was pictures. Very of clear. That. Yeah. It's a fascinating uh, did you see, phenomenon. Did, did you see the photograph of the airplane that went directly across the sun? Yeah. Oh, that was beautiful. Did you see that the crew of that aircraft were contacted? No. Uh, some Redditor tracked down that given the OP, the, given the photographer's location, it could only be... It had to be one of two flights. Wow. Okay, that makes sense. I mean, you could find the flight data and know when yep. it took place and the eclipse was yep. happening. And so he said, it's either American Airlines or this. I know someone that works at American Airlines. So he contacted the guy at American Airlines. I tracked down the crew. The crew said that they wanted copies signed by the photographer. And in exchange, they would send him copies signed by the crew. That's awesome. That is amazing. That really and, is amazing. And to think, this photo originally got shared on Reddit by a third party, and then this guy came around to say, "Hey, I'm I'm the I'm, guy." Wow, that's incredible. But yeah, that that's gonna be real because that that signed by the crew of the people in the in airplane. The, Imagine uh, everyone in that airplane would want a copy too. I would yeah, for sure. Uh, and also a, a lawyer, an intellectual property lawyer, suggested that he. Uh, file a copyright, an online copyright, right away for that photo. Yes, I'm sure it's going to be a popular one that will get used all yes. over the place. Yeah, because believe it or not, it looks like a sword. Yeah, it sure does. It looks like a sword. The crescent being the what? What's the bit right above your hand when you're holding hilt. a sword? The hilt. Yeah, it's beautiful. That's for sure. It's a whole. It's an amazing natural phenomenon. I'm glad I got to uh, experience it, and I'm glad the world could take a little bit of time, or at least the U.S. Uh, to to appreciate nature and, and things beyond themselves. Speaking of that, I guess it's time we continue with this roundup. So let's just jump right on to the next story uh, over at imperialviolet.org. Yeah, which I've never heard of before. No, me either. This is my first encounter over here. But what they're talking about here is security keys, which are USB 
controlled fob. So everyone's seen the little fob that you have in your keychain, which has a six-digit number. It's similar to Google Auth. But the difference with this USB thing is that it can be contacted by the software directly. But they suggest that having a button that you have to physically press prevents maliciousness. But malicious, well, maybe not prevent, but reduces the chance reduce, of maliciousness. Yeah. And they say it's better than SMS two-base authentication um, because SMS in itself has other uh, issues. And there is a, a Dub3C standard for security keys, which is still in progress, but sites can use the FIDO API now. And these things are, are fairly inexpensive. Like they've got some here for 17 bucks, some for 14 some, some more for 18 some for uh, 9 um, but yeah, it, it is an interesting idea. It's the something you have. It's also something you know because that, that could be a um, a, a very uh, could be a signing key. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Here, here, sign this. Send it back. Yeah, that would work. Yeah, that would, that would work nicely. Hey, and then you could know have, that. I'm oh, sorry. Go on. Have you seen Ping ID? I think it's Ping ID. Basically, it just comes up on your on your watch or your phone, and you just swipe it. There's no number to type in. You just swipe it. That's interesting. No, I'm not familiar with that. Uh, so somehow the application contacts your phone, and your, your phone says, "Hey, is this okay?" And you say, "Yes, it is," by doing a swipe. And so that's the that's the confirma- confirmation that the login is okay to proceed. Or yeah. whatever action. Um, that sounds pretty simple and uh, mm. convenient to use anyway. Uh, uh, George Neville Neal was saying that his uh, favorite application of his of his smartwatch is the swipe to approve a commit that he's doing. <laughs> so he's, he's committing code in. Is this really you? Yep. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah, simple, effective. I, I like yep. that. Do you use any of these uh, security keys? Uh, I don't use the security keys, but I have all my uh, Google Auth type stuff on my watch. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I've got so, a, yeah, I've got yep. a YubiKey that I need to um, reset up. I set it up uh, initially, but uh, was not quite happy with the configuration and, and the, the keys on there and how they work with SSH. So I need to redo it, but uh, maybe that can be something I talk about more in the show. When you say YubiKey, do you mean Yubico? Yeah. Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, like that's the manufacturer. Like Y-U-B-I-C-O? Because they got a picture of this down there, yeah, and I've never used it for anything. I've never seen, I've never had a use case come up. Yeah, just pretty handy. I know a lot of people use them. Um, I mean, you know, you can put GPG keys on there, and then you can tie that into SSH. So if you have your device there, then um, hmm. you know you can be you can have your private key on the Yubi key, uh, and then be sure that. Yeah, hey, this isn't going to. I know a lot of people who have like multiple multiple keys or need to set something up where maybe your key has access to sensitive information and you'd like to be able to prove that you can destroy it or prove that it's stored securely. Uh, as well as, I think they have one model that has NFC, so you can use that to transmit stuff to your phone. I, I don't have that model, ooh, I ooh, it, but I thought that NFC. was interesting. And I think they're working on a, somewhere down here, they mentioned a USB C version, I think. Let's see. But that one looks like it's pretty expensive. Man. Yeah, fifty dollars. Yeah, that's interesting. I'll have to U- look more USB-A. Yeah. 
Some of them are USB-C, some of them are USB-A. I guess they're going for the lowest common denominator. But USB-C will do USB-A as well, so I don't see where it matters. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So maybe in the future I can get, get one of those and have a universal device. That would be nice to have. Anyway, um, if people are interested in this sort of thing, we could definitely talk more about it or, or look at some more reviews. I know uh, on the JB Network, Noah also uses YubiKeys, or at least has in the past, and has talked about it a bit on old episodes of the Linux Action Show, etc. So there's lots of good resources to find, as well as some good tutorials out there for you know how to set these things up. Okay, so yes. moving right along, back to Twitter. 83601 is the supervisor number at a local grocery store because instead of walking 10 feet, the guy shouted it to another cashier. Yikes. <laughs> Real life security oh. failure right there. Um, yeah. Somebody's not aware. But, yeah. Apparently, I don't actually know how I could make use of this, but... I'm sure somebody out there knows. <laughs> yeah. It's just a good, good example of, you know, and there may not have been too much harm here. Who knows if anyone actually malicious and in the know did something about it. But it doesn't really matter, right? The, the principle is kind of the key, and it's really easy to leak information. So just just be careful out there, folks. Don't do it. Exactly. So, this is a little bit of interesting news. Brian Krebs fan creates new cryptocurrency miner for Linux devices. So where does the Brian Krebs part come in? Sure, there's all kinds of, you know, cryptocurrencies and miners out there. Well, there there are, but basically how people do do this is they they uh, malware authors are well known for putting comments in their code that either uh, are directed at security researchers or are not. Like, basically, the Trojans stood in the eyes of Dr. Webb researchers because of the many references to KrebsOnSecurity.com, the personal blog of InfoSec investigator journalist, investigative journalist Brian Krebs. So it's not the first malware to reference Krebs, but in recent years it's been quite commonplace for malware authors to give insult or give Krebs a shout out on their code. So basically here, if you read through it, you can actually see where it says um, where did I find it? Uh, No, I lost it now. I had it in here earlier when I was reading through the code. But yeah. Basically, they're just giving a shout out to Brian Krebs in in this uh, malware. Um, (coughs) Pardon Basically, someone the, the software is is it's a cryptocurrency miner. So, for example, Bitcoin or one of the other varieties have arrived. It basically infects Linux devices that use open or default Telnet credentials. Who's still using Telnet and doesn't have it secured? It's horrible. Patrick, crap! Come on. Yeah, tell me. Yeah. Come on, that's that's like lowest possible barrier of entry out there. Yep. If they go on, at the last um, paragraph says, if any of our readers use Telnet to connect to their Linux devices, make sure to secure the Telnet account with a strong password. If the Telnet account already has a password, make sure it's not the default password that ships with the device's manual. 
they, they, they need to also figure out how to use an apostrophe here. In addition, make sure you're not using one of these generic and easy-to-guess easy passwords. Yeah, don't go in there. Amen. Yikes. Well, that's it. That's a little bit of a interesting, interesting trivia. Brian Krebs just has all the fans. Uh, I now figured it out. Um, they write to standard out. Um, KrebsOnSecurity.com backwards. Oh, interesting. Okay. If you go and find the code, it, it's on line 24 in, in the code segment. Oh, yeah. And uh, it, it is interesting. I knew I'd seen it before, but when I was scanning through it this time, I just could not see it. And there it is. And then they now, later, they on 44, they write it again, but this time not reversed? Yep. Funny. And I didn't see that that one looking through. So it sounds like uh, they start off with that and then write it later. But yeah, I'm going to have to read the code more to find out. But yeah. Huh. Funny. Okay. So next up, over at the SS, Open SSL blog, some random thoughts. Yes. And some of the the bits were, that were interesting here were they start. The most interesting bit takeaway from this is what they did in terms of cleaning up uh, terminology in the documentation. It's mostly because the term entropy is both highly technical and confusing. So what they've done is decided to use uh, a more vague term but more accurate, randomness. So uh, there are a whole lot of things that they're talking about. Um, they imported the AES-based uh, DRBG from the OpenSSL project, FIPS project, and made it the default RAND method. The old method would use an ad hoc, sort of ad hoc set of methods to get seed data has been removed. Um, they've also uh, gotten better at random number data generators, DRBGs, deterministic deterministic that's what it is so um rng and rbg are both supposed to be the same so random number generator is also supposed to be a random byte generator so an nrbg is a non-deterministic random byte generator i think that's what it's supposed supposed to be uh but yeah they talked about nist and and how that's supposed to go. So what they didn't do, the RAND DRBG API isn't public yet, but it probably will be in a future release. Um, some of the stuff here that they're doing that I really like is the fact that they're uh, improving the terminology because sometimes that confuses people. And yes, I like the term randomness better than entropy because, you know, 32 bytes of entropy versus 7 bytes of entropy and why that's good and what it makes sense it really means I should put the XKGB uh, relevant post in the show notes. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Let's definitely do that. Yeah, this is helpful. It's okay, a nice we'll overview of things and, and goes to show. I think it's important for Open OpenSSL Project to talk about you know the things that are improving, what they're doing, and especially with all the you know the recent problems and controversies over the last couple of years, just to give give a little more insight into into what's happening over there. So that's this is all neat to see. Okay, so next up, SecGen. Here's a little tool to create randomly insecure 
VMs. This is a, an interesting little project. You'd sort of think, why do you want that? What use is that? But yeah, just create something that is randomly insecure and then try breaking into it. It's a good teaching tool. Um, because if you had to set this up, up manually each time, you'd wind up setting the same thing all the time. Right. So it's, it's hard to, to be, you know, to try to secure that against yourself. You need some sort of randomness or another agent or something that you can, you know, kind of be working against here. So that's awesome. And especially for people just learning, you know, it might be pretty tedious or you don't have a full understanding of like various ways that you should be trying to break things or, you know, set them up insecurely. So if there's a good set of examples or random, you know, cookbook type things that can go do that for you might lower the barrier to entry as well yeah i i didn't go very much into this to find out how they were doing it or what tools they were using but uh, it looks like it's if using vagrant uh puppet and ruby and VirtualBox. yeah yeah virtual box is something i have used in the past but i haven't used it recently and i remember Objecting to using ZFS Snap or something. I think that's the uh, ZFS tool that Alan Jude recommends for snapshot management. Mm, okay. And I said, no, I'm not going to use that. It's it's all Ruby. It's so much code. But then I realized nowadays we have terabyte size drives. Why does it matter if I have to install another f- couple hundred K or meg right yeah exactly code just to do that this space is cheap nowadays time isn't time isn't so if you can get a useful tool and as long as it doesn't you know like pollute your libraries or or cause a big old Mm -hmm. mess then Mm -hmm. yeah that's Mm -hmm. great and it's all managed through the freebsd ports tree so what you know i I think i will look at these guarantees about about what's happening there yeah so it's not as bad as it sounds but yes this sec gen thing Sounds a lot of fun. And it is recently maintained, too. Beautiful. Awesome. Well, maybe people will give that a try. Let us know what they think. So, please. on to our final bit of today's roundup. That's right. Here's a clever algorithm that can recreate a 3D object from tiny 2D images. That hardly sounds possible. How does it do that? I'm not quite sure. Okay, so here's some examples. Uh... Oh, yeah, look at that. So they've got various, like, pictures of planes or cars. Yeah, so they have something called a voxel cubed volume. And so the, the they're sort of like pixels. So it's similar to pixels in that it's a 3D rendering. So it going up a dimension means you've got a lot more data to think about. Take an image that's about 100 pixels on each side for a total of 10,000 pixels. An accurate reproduction of it might be 100 pixels tall as well. So you've gone from 10,000 to a million pixels. Voxels, actually. Now that's what they're, now that they're 3D. So once something is 3D, it's called a voxel. So volume and pixel, I think. Yeah, something like so that. if you want to be even a little more precise, say go up to 128 pixels, that's only 28% change in each direction. You need 2 million voxels. So you've actually doubled because 28 times 28 times 28 is pretty close to 100. So you've gone up 100%. Whoa. Yikes. Uh, no, 28 times 28 times 28 is not 100. But if you add them all up, it's close to 100. So yeah, 
basically the more uh, detail you want to get from the diagram, the more voxels you need. Yeah, right. That makes sense. Yeah, it's interesting. And so, so the encoder is sort of looking at it from a given angle and it sort of knows what the angle is and then it just iteratively tries to make the the 3D image better, I think. Yeah, it gets a little complicated, um, but... You know, it's they, all they, technical, yeah. and I don't understand it. They realize that generally you're not actually calculating the whole volume, but only trying to describe yes. like the surface of the object, yeah. the empty space around it, and inside. You don't really need to waste time modeling that. So they ha- they do some clever optimizations there. Um, you can get it, you can read the article for yourself and kind of figure out, look at some of it. You can also go go over to the archive and you can find the paper there, which I might have to go do after this because it seems really neat. Um, yeah, pretty cool. I can imagine it being useful because the the examples given at the top are pretty cool. Yeah, they are pretty cool. But you could easily fool this because you could have something like attached to the back of that chair and it just it, it wouldn't be able doesn't to doesn't know how to render it. Yeah. But uh, I can already see it being used in like CSI style shows, uh, you know, where they got this tiny blurry image and they need mm-hmm. to come up with a, mm-hmm. oh yeah, the murder mm-hmm. weapon, that's it right there. You're right that you could fool it though. So I don't think that'll work out super well, but hey, that's a popular culture for you. It's not going to work. Uh, all right, well, that does it for the roundup. <laughs> and I guess for this episode of TechSnap, anything you want to leave our dear audience with before we depart? Uh, no, make sure you keep that sensitive stuff off the internet and yes. put in a good firewall. Don't let them get to your telnet ports and patch your shit, please. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's always a good recommendation. And from time to time, you know, um, I think we've said it on past shows, but go go grab a DO droplet or, or what have you and Give your sensitive networks a you know an external scan. Go check out just what holes you're having. Maybe you set up something real quick and then uh, had, got called or had to go take the dog outside or something, and you forgot. Hey, I never secured that port. Easy things to do. Good things to find out about. If you want more of this show, which hey maybe you do after today's episode, I certainly hope so. Head on over to JupiterBroadcasting.com. There you'll find our archives. The previous incarnation of this show and a whole gamut of other incredible shows things like linux action news the ever popular user error and rightly so our uh you can call it let's say sister podcast bsd now and lots more great stuff so go do that you can go head on over to the contact page and give us some feedback there's a calendar which let you know when we're going to be here live you can join us live there's a live stream there as well as an irc room you can join so lots of great options you want even more? Uh, I'm at West Payne on Twitter. He's at TechSnap underscore Dan. This has been episode 333 of your TechSnap program. Thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.